Welcome back to The Label, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. Today on the show, Josh Porter. I think he's one of the most interesting front men of our scene, and he's of this particular type whose spirit of rebellion resonates across many mediums, one of which being Showbread's music. But Josh connects with people in lots of ways, and their set at Furnace Fest last year seemed to be a testament to how deeply connected their fans really are. Um, and this podcast spends a lot of time analyzing the musical and the relational and the professional choices that bands make. But I'm often asked why I don't get more into people's faith on the podcast, given that it's such a central theme. And I think sometimes it's an organic thing to come up. And sometimes certain people just have a more inherent energy toward the spiritual things. And I think Josh Porter is one of those people. And in this case, he has a new book called Death to Deconstruction. And it just seemed like an ideal opportunity to have more of a spiritual-based conversation and give more of a perspective of how Josh's mind works. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I really enjoy spending the time with Josh. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really good. You've been doing a bunch of interviews and press on this on this book. I have, yeah. Um. I think it's really fascinating. I mean, I I am listen. You know, to me, the whole this whole territory to know people for twenty years that are still interested in similar topics and have, although they change and modify and everything, have the same kind of interest and a trajectory that's not fixed, but still on some path that is consistent. For twenty plus years, that's fa- those are fascinating people to me, and you're you're certainly one of those people. Oh, thanks, man. I agree. It is it is fascinating and bizarre. Yeah, it is. Um, I want to start just by talking about the the Furnace Fest moment. That was just to me. Um, that Furnace Fest moment seemed like a an important and big thing, and then I want to talk more about l- leading up to that and where things are today and everything else, but. Um, I was at Furnace Fest for the first few days, and I flew out the day that you guys played. And I had such a good grounding. I was watching almost every show. I was watching shows all day, every day on those grounds and really absorbing that experience. Um, and it was really a peak experience, a spiritual experience, and a mystical experience for me. Um, that festival, out of all the you know shows and things I played, it was really, um, it was really something special for me personally. And... I was pretty in tune with all the the grounds and the stage and everything. And when I saw the pictures and the reactions and then all the Facebook groups and the videos of your set, I was so, I was like, dang, that's the one. I wish I could have been at that one. I knew that was a huge one to have missed because I could just, um, just by seeing people's reports and the videos and the things about it, that really seemed like a really magical, you know, moment. And I was curious. I just wanted to jump in there and see what, you know, give get your experience of that that weekend and particularly you know that set it was a magical moment you know you it sounds like you're talking hyperbolically but somehow all those things are true and the weird thing is is that it was completely uncontrived meaning we had tried to fabricate that kind of experience with farewell shows and reunion shows um which and i don't mean to sound that they were some they were insincere. They were totally sincere, but we put all this effort into capturing some kind of moment in time 
to bring everyone out together and play the first record all the way through or to um, play what was at the time legitimately, at least in our minds, what would be our last show. But I think every band knows that in their peripheral no vision, thing. there's the possibility <laughs> yeah, that you might. It's like a comic book character dying. You know that mm-hmm. like maybe they're dead, maybe they're not dead. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and those things were great. They were fun. They were special. Uh, this one felt nothing like that. It was like Chad, um, who historically has been kind of at the helm of Furnace Fest. I was talking on the phone with him, and it's that's not irregular. We catch up every now and then. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm trying to do Furnace Fest one more time. If, if I do it, would Showbread play? And I, in the moment, was just like, I mean, yeah, probably, I guess. I don't see why not, even though playing again was not even remotely on my radar or something that I was aspiring to do, or I had no secret plans to try to, you know, get the gang back together. But with this guy and at that particular festival, that sounded fun to me at when he mentioned it. And I sent some preliminary text messages to the people who don't live in my immediate vicinity and asked like, Hey, if, if Chad did this, I, I have no idea if he will, who knows if it'll come together and who knows if they'll even really invite us. But Right now, just theoretically, would anyone like to do that? And everyone, virtually everyone, was immediately like, yeah, sure, why not? This most casual, lackadaisical, like, yeah, whatever. So it wasn't this big plan, like, hey, I've got this burden on my heart to get the band together to do this amazing thing. In fact, it felt real, really whimsical. And yet, from the moment that I you know, landed in... Birmingham and saw the guys that I had some of the guys I hadn't seen in years, a few that I, you know, I don't see routinely. There was just this uh, electricity in the air more so than these other, these other get togethers and reunions where it was so good to see everyone. And then all of a sudden you're on this, you're in back plunged into this world, at least for me that I'm not regularly participating in, in any meaningful way and seeing all these people that I haven't seen in years, but but shared like a really meaningful slice of life with some of them just for, you know, I, I'm now hugging Skylar from He Is Legend. We toured together for like, I don't know, two years straight, it felt like. But I haven't seen him or spoken to him since then, since 2004 and five. Uh, but it felt amazing. It was like, oh my God, it's you. And then you turn around and there's someone else right there that I haven't seen in a million years. And so it felt almost like the way high school reunions are depicted in film. Uh, yes, and all, all that coming together on stage. I thought honestly that like, it would be a miracle if we just played competently and had a good time in the process because we were getting together, practicing for like a day. We haven't played together in years, and then getting right on stage to play. But everything went really, really well. It was madness and chaos, but it felt like there was so much. This sounds so. Uh, vague but it felt like there was there was so much love in it and being able to play together and enjoy one another's company it felt so sincere and the um the reciprocation that we got from a very gracious audience i honestly had no you know um preconceived notions about like they're gonna love us or it's gonna be big i didn't even think about this is I know that people are going to assume that I'm lying, but I really didn't even think about whether or not anyone would come to see our set or like it. I was just thinking it'll be fun to get together with these guys and play again. And if, if anyone cares that we're, we are playing, that would be nice too. But to me, it kind of began and ended with, Oh, that I want, I do want to see those guys and I, it would be fun to play these songs again. But then there was this really generous reaction 
from a crowd that seemed to care that we were playing and and reciprocated very graciously. And then afterward, you know, there were all these people that were like, oh, that really meant something to me. So it became something so much more than the whimsical, like, I guess so. Yeah, sure. If you do that, I'll play it, uh, which mm-hmm. really surprised me. It, it was a surprise in a way. But in retrospect, if you look at it and analyze it, it, it you can kind of see why it was so special. It Like, it seems so obvious, but it's like... You know, maybe, and you've been away from the scene or whatever and performing like that for a long time, but I've been doing it through, you know, I never quit. Um, and I've just been a million places and a million festivals and a lot of them with the same bands. And it's been so horrible so many times. <laughs> like there's so many times where it's the most lifeless thing. Um, and so, you know, and so that's what I think is really special about it is this possibility that you can't plan or schedule to have the most special moments happen. That seems to be something true, but it it gets proven, you know, in the music scene various times, but you're right. It's like, Oh, we're going to have the farewell, this or the special, this and that. And those things can be anything that has a chance to make it special is, is one thing, but it takes everybody deciding we're going to all give ourselves to this moment. And then if the conditions get right, sometimes it can, things can go to some next level and that post pandemic, you know, all those things, um, you know, just the relationships that were there and everything about it was one of those examples. And it, and it, um, there's something about time and history that people share. Uh, I heard somebody say there's a definition for meaning in, in life. That's like meaning is like time locked shared memories. Like when you have something where you and another person have a shared experience, and it's across time that is mean that is meaning that's the like the the fabric of how meaning works in life or something like that and it's like the first time i saw showbread was 2002 at club impact in tacoma you know no idea what that what showbread meant or was or anything and this crazy van full of people with red pants shows up and just did something i'd never you know, had never seen before, but at the same time said, that's what I'm trying to do too, you know? And then this is, and and then all the things in between and everything, but you know, those kinds of things really all stack up and then post pandemic. So that's a a bunch of the factors, but I have this feeling, I have this, you know, belief that there's something really unique about the culture, the punk culture as it's tied to Christianity and underground that is like this really hyper amount of layers of meaning um, that are just really stacked up because we all know music is powerful in just some unique way that almost nothing else is. I mean, there's something that I really do think is, you know, in the realm of magic about what music does um, in the first place and then shared experience with other people. And then when you have its own, when, when it's a culture, like the punk whole thing is like its own culture where there's a bunch more layers to it than just sounds and stuff. And then across many years, and then the fact that the tooth and nail scene, that the punk Christian alternative, alternative Christian, whatever's in that, then you have one of the most other powerful unifying forces of faith and spirituality infused. And that cocktail, I mean, I'm, obviously addicted to it you know like that there there and i you know you said i've been um hyperbolic but i I, not to me to me it is these experiences can be peak mystical experiences i mean you know because of the 
all all the stuff that that is that is there and and bleeds across and everything. So um, I'm kind of curious to hear the way you think about those type of elements across the time sp- period of your life, which also really kind of goes in line with your book. Um, and just I find all those things to be very very you know interconnected, and you haven't been navigating through them in a unorthodox and you know rebellious way you know through and through so that's you know if that's that's kind of the background but do you um when it comes to faith and music just first of all do you if i say that music is magical somehow do you have words or description for that like apart from faith just music itself do you have any words or thoughts on the on the power of it i don't i don't apart from faith i think that uh art itself is created in in my worldview by God and is therefore inherently divine in that sense, in that art originates in God, comes from God. God is the first and best artist. So in the same way that like, uh, you know, Christians believe that human beings are made in the image of God, I believe that um, art comes from God and is infused with God. That doesn't mean that any creative thing in the whole world is itself divine or anything like that. I just mean that the idea of art originates in God. And so when there is the potential for these unique, you know, factors to come together in some kind of the the way that you're describing, I think goes back to your, your definition about meaning and time, especially something like Furnace Fest. So there's these this long, long era of bands that had existed, you know, 10, 20 years prior to, you know, that perform their performance at Furnace Fest. And some of them had disbanded and come back together just to play at Furnace Fest like ours did, or some of them had been inactive and were now active again. And all these people that were at Furnace Fest, uh, and of course there's, you know, there's an exception to every rule, but a great many of them, at least in my conversations walking around the grounds, have long histories in that world. You know, they were kind of uh, coming of age in a scene, if you like, or in, in a kind of uh, punk rock moment in time years and years and years ago. And so even if they're, faith story had diverged from someone else's or even if they're um, they're in the exact same place that they were 10 years ago when they bought this first record, they're all sharing the same kind of broad stroke experience, which is, uh, a you know, the journey of human formation. I, re- I realize this sounds really esoteric, mm-hmm. but formation or spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. That's something that right. every human being is, is, uh, experiences. Uh, we're all in the process of becoming someone else over time. And for those of us who have spent any time in faith circles or the church or the Christian movement, there's pain there. Every single one of us have um, hurt and what someone might describe as like religious trauma because we try to carry out the faith journey with other people and other people are broken. And so we hurt one another. And so, regardless of whether or not someone arrives at the grounds at Furnace Fest is like, I was a youth group kid when I bought this record. And you know what? Now I still am in some sense. I'm a pastor and a Christian. My belief hasn't really changed all that much. Or someone is like, I was a youth group kid when I bought this record, and now I'm not. I don't believe any of those things anymore. But they still share a common ground in the sense that they went through a journey together that probably has a lot of similarities. There's a lot of pain and hurt and formation there. 
And so they're coming together in one big place to share these memories and experiences and love for the music and the thing that self that's infused with what I believe is this God given spark uh, uh, or magic, if you like. Um, and so it, it makes for this really combustible recipe where it's, it was fascinating to me that afterward, and you know, I, I talked on stage about what I believe in then and what I believe now. And so there were people coming up to me that were, had no issue whatsoever. And I didn't have any issue with it either saying like, I don't agree with you. That's not where I am. But this set was meaningful to me for these reasons, or this record is still meaningful to me for these reasons. And I was deeply appreciative of that. And then there were other people who came up to me and were saying, like, I'm right there with you. This is how I feel, too. It felt so good to hear that from you. Um, and that's why this record is meaningful to me for these mm -hmm. reasons and why this performance was meaningful to me for these reasons. So it was this really fascinating, but honestly, not that surprising uh example of this like a real life pragmatic thing where we're, we're sharing something we have a lot of similarities even if now we've arrived in very different places but the unifying aspect and all of unifying. it was this this mm -hmm. art yeah this this creativity so that people could stand right next to each other believing very different things and shout the same lyrics you know and and i'm up on stage shouting them back to them it's a really fascinating moment in time so that's that's love, right? I mean, it's unifying. It's not divisive. I mean, you you have every reason to divide with people in this world, but yet you unify with people that are different in that type of moment. So that isn't, you know, music is like the substrate of that somehow. Because otherwise, why would you be with those people? Yeah, I think and have so. a unifying I mean moment. Yeah, there's there's love in it. For I mean, I'm speaking for myself personally, but I I believe that there's love in it um but it 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 will eventually run out of gas in that it's almost like the love for a sports team or something mm -hmm. like that where you get these people who might on monday hate one another for all kinds of reasons culture and animosity and politics but they come together arm in arm with you know shouting and screaming and loving one another because their team is winning um, I think personally, and this is just my wiring, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have someone disagree, but art is probably more meaningful in long term and in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things than a sports team winning a game. Um, so that it comes with a deeper kind of shared love. These are like my stories and experiences and they're in this song or in this band or in this record. And we're, we're sharing them. You love them. I love them too. That makes us connected in some meaningful way. We can accept one another in that sense. Um, but it's it's a kind of love that does not make its way past that superficial shared experience mm -hmm. and into like self-sacrificial love, which is a lot more challenging. You know what I mean? No, I totally agree. But on the ladder of things, sports is a very unifying thing to some degree. But still, I would distinguish this music thing on a, a, for sure a next level because in sports, you do get unity in, like you said, in defeating another team who you're yeah, against, true, which yeah. you do not need in art and music particularly. You're just on the same wavelength as all the people there. You cannot have a sporting event that isn't inherently a competition. But music yeah, that's true. can. So that's just, that is the next level um, where you and the other team are together. I mean, and in some sense, if you're an esoteric and a sports fan, you can appreciate the 
what we all do in the stadium and understand that we're not really divided. We all like football, but that's that's still music is on the next level. If a stadium full of fans that watch Bruce Springsteen are united, but a stadium full of people that are um, listen to music and there's a spiritual component that you can really feel that's deeper than Bruce Springsteen is present in our scene. I, I don't know. To me, that's just like, that is really, I understand these are just physical things in the world to, to some degree, but they still are the way, they are still some way that is the most at least useful for concepts that are even higher than music, which exist, I believe, you know, as well. And so when you are a kid in Georgia, I mean, that's a parallel between you and I. I grew up down the road in South Carolina, um, and you grew up in Georgia, and we found ourselves to be out. Then that's what's concurrent with all of this tooth and nail Christian alternative subculture yep. in the wider sense. Um, outsiders, rebellious, not going to fit in, but looking for positive, that, that same thing. I was not trying to be a bad person. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to find unity. I'm trying to find love. And guess what? I'm not fitting in with the things of this world that are here. They say I'm not them. They say I'm bad. And I know that isn't right. So I got to keep searching. So uh, that leads me to do something like start a band, get into alternative culture, move across the country to Seattle where I am right now. You're in Georgia, a few miles down the road, same age as me, encounter similar cultural elements, as do people all over the thing. And now here you are in Portland, you're in Oregon, uh, South Carolina to, to Washington, and then Georgia to, um, you know, Oregon. So I find that parallel really similar. So I just want to hear, I don't haven't had the time to ever catch up with you on what that journey is. And I'm not trying to force it into the same one as mine, but um, what was, I know you grew up in a fundamentalism and things like that in Georgia, whatever, but I'm hoping you could connect those dots to, you know, to find in the alternative subculture and what are the concept. And, and then of course, I'm just saying you ha did choose the path of using music to reach maybe even higher concepts. And I'm curious what yeah. your awareness was that and how that formate that part of your formation uh, journey happened. Well, I think that there was something that was deeply sincere early on, but if I'm being honest, I immature and, and understandably so, you know, at a very young age, I felt, uh, I, I think a lot like you as if um, I was, I wouldn't have had the language to articulate it back then, but I was wired to kind of go against the grain of the status quo I felt this deep allergic reaction to like, we all have to do it this way. And I was the type of person who was like, well, then I want to do it the exact opposite. And uh, it wasn't because I was consciously wanting to be a butthole or be problematic or be rude. It, that was just like this to a fault. It's, I still am that way. And hopefully I'm a lot more mature about it now than I was then. But it's just this wiring in my personality. And sometimes it can be used for good, but but often it can be used for not as good or immature. But then at the same time, there is this uh, human, you know, a a attribute to me that wants to belong to something. I want to um, give myself over to something bigger than myself. I think that that's universal mm -hmm. to the human experience. Um, so it becomes this painful push and pull where I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to do what everyone's doing, but I do want to belong. I don't want to get in line with everyone, but I do want to be with everyone, you know, meaning I want like relationship. I want community, um, again, not having the language to articulate that. So it puts a young person in this really 
painful kind of cognitive dissonance where um, the world that I was given to connect with other people was the church primarily. You know, you have these social circles like school and fa- family, friends and things, but church for us was the big hub. Mm-hmm. And we spent, you know, like um, two or three days a week at church. We went to church and Sunday morning and Sunday night, we had the Wednesday night thing and my friends from school went to my church. So these were the people that I knew and that loved me. These were the people that like held me when I was a baby that came to the hospital to see me when I was born and that would tell me when I was 10 years old, like, I used to change your diapers, all that stuff. My family had been there before I was born. But it was so also the environment the where you had the most felt the most belonging out of the environments yes. that you're po- possible. That's the one where you feel the most belonging is the, is the church one. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, Without me trying it, that was just the the world in which I had been born and raised. So it wasn't like someone tried to uh, communicate to me a theology of community or anything like that. It was just by, you know, um, I took it for granted that these are the people that know me and I know them and we go on vacation together. And it, it was the, you know, a deeply connected sort of um, interpersonal relational environment. And so I wanted to belong. I wanted to um I wanted approval from these people. I wanted them to say, like, you're good, and uh, and we believe in you, and we support you. Again, this is just the human experience, the human condition. But at the same time, I felt, uh, the, the older I got, that I was beginning to see holes in the whole thing. And the culture of my church culture in which I was raised was, you know, this is rural, deep South Georgia. It was Southern Baptist and fundamentalist. And this is not a commentary on all Southern Baptist churches or the denomination itself, but my little expression of it was um, hyper-nationalistic, militaristic, racist, and um, there's just hypocrisy at all levels of church leadership. And so it doesn't take long if you are investigating these things in any meaningful way, meaning, you know, I'm someone who had been told the whole Jesus thing was the way to go. So I'm actually trying to look into them the older I get and read my Bible and mature as a Christian, you know, like this is youth group world. And, and, uh, the, but the more that I investigated, the more I felt as if there was this painful incongruence between the environment of our church and what I was seeing on the, the page so to speak. And and when I drew attention to that, not even trying to be divisive and snarky and punk rock, just by saying like, well, you guys said this, but I'm seeing this, help me understand. There was, you know, a lot of uh, uh, pushback. There was a lot of angry, these are not the right kind of kinds of questions to ask, ask and are you in sin and do you not have enough faith? And um, if you did have faith, you wouldn't feel the need to kind of pick this apart. And I didn't feel like that's what I was doing. I felt like I was trying to understand. And so then along, uh, you know, that timeline, here comes punk rock. And you and I have talked about this before. And you find this thing that feels like um, a place to belong for outsiders, which is kind of yeah. a contradiction, but it, but it makes sense. And it felt like these are my people. This is my thing. And there was no place to touch down in a punk rock world where I was from. I'm finding it from far away. You know, I'm seeing something on TV or mm-hmm. getting a tooth and nail catalog at a youth camp um, and finding out about these bands for the first time and feeling like, well, this is more, this is more underground in punk rock than the, you know, kind of mainstream expressions of punk rock because there's tears to it. I mean, I don't know, we talked about this before too, but it's like you find Green Day and Offspring because that's what's on the TV and the radio. But then you find 
um, these other layers beneath the top layers, and you're like, ooh, this feels even more subversive and even more like um, not everyone has access to this. It's special, and it's for me, and not everyone else has even heard of these bands, and that's the kind of thing then and now that is most interesting to me, the, the idea that you found something that's special and uniquely yours, and even in the world of Tooth & Nail, I used to gravitate toward the bands that were most alienating on the roster and take them for myself, you know, like everyone in the van likes to listen to MXPX, but Josh is the one who likes 90 pound wuss, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so there's this all through adolescence and growing up that kind of push pull feeling of like, I want to belong. I want to be somewhere with other like-minded people and share community and relationship, but also I want to be an outsider. I want to be different. I want to be special and unique um, and I did not have the tools or resources or mentorship necessary for someone to be like, look, these are not necessarily good or bad things per se. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad, but you can take them and you can grow and mature as a person and have both things. You can have community and relationship and you can acknowledge your wiring that prefers these aesthetics or this kind of expression or art. Um, but it took instead it took years and years and years of painful wrestling and like i you know wanting to belong to the church with a capital c even if it wasn't the church in which i was raised um and then eventually feeling as if i was completely at odds with the entire church and i felt like you know i was the the smartest 19 year old who had figured out the whole thing and uh, uh, identified every level of corruption and i was going to forge a better path for myself and everyone else and then eventually realizing, well, that's not really that tenable. And I guess I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, but still not then immediately doing a 180 back into, so I guess I'll go back home and go to church. You know, it's still wrestling through all these things and wanting to belong in both punk rock and Christianity in some way and feeling like these things, the reason that I liked both was because I felt that they made a lot of sense together. I felt like, you know, the, the way of Jesus was inherently punk rock. Uh, and that wasn't a put on or like a youth group cool thing. In fact, that was extremely, um, you know, put down in my world that, that making that connection was like, oh, no, 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 no. Now it sounds like a really cheesy youth groupy thing to say, oh, Jesus is punk rock. But when I first made that connection, um, it was not uh, it was frowned upon to say mm. the least. But I felt like I, I still wanted to find a place to have these things exist together. And so I'm I'm in these long seasons of my life conducting myself in the world as a musician and an artist who's, I think, expressing those things um, pretty candidly, even though, you know, it's art, so there's always abstract and metaphor and parable, but pretty candidly and openly um, to the degree that you eventually uh, age and mature and find yourself at Furnace Fest, not arrive arrived by any stretch of the imagination, not as if I've come to completion and settled every um, res uh, conflict that I ever had. But you end up on stage at Fern Furnace Fest looking out at a crowd of people and saying like, you know, this is, this, is, this is what I think about the world today as someone who's much older and hasn't done this in a long time. And there, there came this point in the set at Furnace Fest where um, I did talk candidly about what I think and the only reason that i did that is because it sort of came naturally in that moment that i was like when showbread used to play every night you know all over the world uh there would come a point in the set where i would start to babble about what i think about the world and um and sometimes it was received with hooray and other times it was received with heckling 
but that was just something that we did ordinarily. Um, and so that moment came in the set and I hadn't like fabricated something that I would do, but this is the moment where I'll do some talking. I just realized we were coming to the end and I was looking and, you know, it was like you said, you're experiencing what was this deeply spiritual moment in time. And I think that I had the wherewithal to, to acknowledge to myself in that moment that this would, will probably not be repeated, at least not in this particular way. Even if we came back and played against a year from now or two years from now, it might be great, but this is something unique. This is something really special. And I know just statistically, let alone relationally, that I'm looking out in an audience that clearly they know the band to some degree. So they might know what we think or, or did, did don't know what we think, or they might make certain assumptions about what we believe now or what we believed then. And I felt as if I wanted to say, like, look, this is... I realized time has passed and I could probably babble up here, wax eloquent about this moment and this time, but here's, here's what I think. And it was amazing. It was met with like both things at one time. There was, you know, the hooray. And there was also the kind of palpable tension in the like, Oh, well, that's not where we are anymore, mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. good for you. And, and that came up afterward with people coming up to me and um, kind of giving feedback on what they thought about what I said. So all that to say, it, it's, a, it's a journey to say the least. Again, you know, spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. We're all going through it. Yeah, the, I love the way that you talk about that. Um, and it something, it's, the, it's almost like, you know, in a climate of polarization, it is kind of the narrow way in, in some sense to, to resist a, the polarization of being in a camp or a tribe or a, a dogmatic thing. Those are the easy ones, and then to fight between them and to have that sense of why to do that on purpose, even though it is painful, that's an impressive character trait, and it feels like it's attached to me to um, you're describing in your early formation, like how, and I guess it's not tragic, it's, it's, it's good, but it, in some ways it's tragic to have the impulse in you that feels like it's wired or you came with it to be contrarian, to do the mm -hmm. opposite, whatever that is. I mean, little, little kids have that before they get, yes. you know, injured by the church or something like you have that, you come with that and, and yet you want to belong. So that's the tension. There's people that are in that tension. And I think that is a, a, a critical piece of why this culture, the tooth and nail wider Christian, you know, that's part of the piece of why this culture is so cohesive um, is because it's a lot of people, whether or not you, you know, that same kind of tension can put you in jail, that, that one, a lot of people are in jail that are wired that way, you know, and, and yeah. I don't know exact, I don't want to over put it on wiring. I do think you identify as ADD probably, but I don't think it's just but that, yeah. but I think that's a common label that gets thrown at at least people, you know what I mean? Like the, the way we do labels, that's part of the play of the name of this podcast is what does it mean to belong or be labeled or identified as something for good and bad? I mean, you can't ever get out of, well, I guess we're a Christian band that's doing it, you know? So just, you know, that whole thing, but it, that is the, the undergirding is that tension of wanting to belong, but needing to define yourself and needing to do something positive and then being understood or misunderstood drives a lot of really fundamentally creative special things that is kind of a, a narrow way that doesn't fall into a, a polarization. And that, that's, that's what I'm yeah. getting from, from just that, that bit of you talking there. Yeah. You know, I think that 
I wouldn't presume to know exactly what would have been best for me. And now, you know, there was a, obviously a lot of hurt and a lot of anger that I carried around for years and embitterment that didn't do me any good, let alone the people for whom I was harboring the bitterness. But now I can see that it probably was a strange and conflicting thing to have this person. I don't mean to say like, man, I'm so unique in all the world, but I probably was more contrarian than the average um, kid in my little generational circle. Um, you know, and I have siblings and I had lots of friends. And so there was a lot of like, well, dude, we get it. You don't want to do it, but why can't you just do it? Look at this person. They're doing it. Do you mm -hmm. think they like math or you know, whatever, you know, like you think that they want to tuck their shirt in, but they're doing it. Can't you just do it? And I think that the assumption was, you know, he can, he's just being a jerk or he's a strong-willed child or teenager or whatever. And no one realized that there was some of that. I'm not saying that I was uh, completely... Yeah, yeah, there was immaturity there for sure, but there was something deeper there too that was like, I, uh, I just can't, you know, like, and um, a lot of that could have been funneled out, I think, in freedom to create and freedom to ex express um, with accountability, with, you know, like, well, look, Josh, fine, you want to, you need to do this, we can support you in that, and historically, the church has kind of um, had a precedent for that, where they have strange prophets and creative uh, creatives and artists who are um, really out there and outrageous and who are held to the same communal standard but given freedom to do their really wild, kooky stuff in a way that's meaningful for other people. And it's not necessarily that everyone needs to go, you know, live in the wilderness and eat grasshoppers. But for this guy, it's important and he's going he's gonna, to like hold a special place in history. Um, so, yeah, I think that every everybody wants to. Now we paint a picture as if uh, we want to belong, but also want to be uniquely autonomous in every way. And I think that there's this inherent contradiction in that everyone that wants to belong, and we all do, to something, and usually something bigger than ourselves, mm -hmm. Um, we all understand that to give our part of ourselves over to anything meaningful requires some surrender of our autonomy, not a complete surrender of autonomy as if you, you know, join a cult and you no longer have any will of your own, but anything, I mean, we all know this already from, you know, like fitness or dietary decisions, or if you make any kind of disciplined life, you know, you're going to go learn karate or how to play the violin or something you understand inherently that you have to surrender part of your autonomy and part of your ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want in the name of this greater thing that you want for yourself. Um, but the redefinition of um, freedom now, I think in it, the illusion that I fell for for a long time was more of the, and I'm oversimplifying here, but the kind of, you know, you do you philosophy or hashtag do what makes you happy or, you know, you find your own truth. But the idea of find your own truth can't possibly build community around itself right. because You'll there's eventually no... be in a community of one that you could, I guess, exactly. belong to, exactly. but what's the point? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, not helpful. And then it becomes, <laughs> right, then it becomes the tribalism that you're talking about, which is we can all go to the football game and hooray for our team, but it's a hooray against the other team, mm -hmm. which is, you know, like a unity around what we're against, not what we're for. And that can't hold itself up for very long, so... I think that I was traveling in these circles that, and having these conversations as an artist, a musician, and as a 
quasi deconstructing Christian that um, was like, well, we can all get together and say we don't like evangelicalism. We can all get together and link arms and say that we were hurt by the church and and be really honest about it and have really sincere stories that need space to breathe. Um, but if everyone is kind of defining truth for themselves in unique in, in hyper unique ways, then we can't possibly build a community around that. It's like going to the karate dojo and saying, like, I'm I've come to learn piano. That's my truth. They'll say, well, that's great, but you can't, <laughs> that's not what we're doing here. So this is not your community, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, might be warped by just the relationships I have with the people that I know, but, you know, in surveying the world and traveling the world and listening to podcasts and like getting access to the world through podcast, I'm not a big reader. So in being able to listen to audiobooks and podcasts for the last 10 years, I've been able, and travel, you know, I've been able to get exposed to a lot of ideas and a lot of thinkers and stuff like that. And I still am quite impressed by a lot of, of the people in our world that, you know, found each other, whatever, um, that have similar stuff, but are, are really clear thinkers. And one of them is, uh, you, you know, you mentioned 90 pound woods, but Jeff suffering is a, a resonant figure. I mean, it, he is parallel to you in that you go by Josh dies. A lot of people know you that way. And him is Jeff suffering. You know, his name's Jeff. Begger. And I took that from him. I actually took that specific thing from him. And, yeah. And you know, there's these clips of when, when at Tom fest of him, uh, interviewing with MV, you know MTV and like being articulate about culture and these exact same things and Jeff's somebody I know pretty well um and I've known him for many years I was at an institutional mega church Mars Hill with him and went to his bible study there and then eventually he differentiates from that and um he has a lot of the same urges um and he he one of the things that 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 he, the trail he's been on for a long time is is looking back to the ancient and the orthodox and the, you know even the orth, eastern ortho, orthodox Christianity and stuff like that. So he seems and um, so all those people like him or Aaron Weiss or whatever. There's people that are more open minded and looking for the same thing, but having to look outside of the immediate traditions and things that are here um, and are received in good and bad ways by people. And it feels, you know, it feels a little bit like the, the, the role of a prophet. Does that resonate for you? It does. Yeah. And not in that I would put myself in league with these really intelligent and influential people. I just mean that I can relate. I think that uh, my own journey with faith and figuring out what I thought about Jesus eventually arrived at a place where um, you're rediscovering the teaching and practices of the early church. Mm-hmm. And that's something that gets romanticized a lot in church circles, even in uh, what we used to call evangelicalism. There would be like, well, the early church, you know, that was just something that gets thrown around as if it's a silver bullet to it's a, a little propagandic in a way. Um, yes, it does. It feels that way. In that circle, yeah. But you do, you do find yourself, um, at least I did, and and people around me, found themselves reaching back into a tradition, which sounds like a contradiction in terms because I was so uh, deeply allergic to traditionalism. Exactly. You just had to get farther but, out to see it, the pattern. <laughs> yes. Yeah, really. It's that, it's that, that desire to, to belong to something um, bigger than yourself. And I think honestly, part of it for me was that the, the expression of, you know, Southern evangelicalism in which I was raised um, 
did offer a kind of communal belonging. And there were, now I can see I'm old enough to admit that there were lovely things about my upbringing. It wasn't all just, you know, poisonous and corrupt from the ground up. There were, there were people and things about it that were lovely. But that it was kind of like a country club Christianity. And I think Southern Christians probably understand this paradigm, the idea that it's a social obligation. You know, like if you're an upright citizen, you're an American, <laughs> then you go to church on Sunday and you participate in a meaningful way, even if the actual teachings of Jesus are not really permeating the surface layer of your life in, in, like a, in a formational, life-changing way. So there's there's aspects of our life that we'll let Jesus touch, and they're usually the things that we already kind of think because culture has put that's the gravitational pull of our culture. But then if it permeates that surface, like we that's okay. Jesus can keep his ideas to himself, and we can find someone to tell us that we're right about that. You know, you can go around long enough and we're like, well, this guy says it's totally fine if we behave this way. Um, and so I felt as if that the thing that was being offered to me, the paradigm for giving your life over to something bigger than yourself, wasn't that appealing because it was little more than a social construct. It was kind of, again, I wouldn't have articulated it this way, but it was kind of like, this is just a country club. It's not really, we're not really um, embracing that horrifying invitation to die to yourself and give yourself over to a way of life. You know, and I, like many people, I'm deeply drawn to the training montage. I'm watching these movies and uh, and being caught up in the idea of you know going out into the Russian wilderness to drag logs around to train uh, in in Rocky Four style, or going out into the swamp to learn how to be a Jedi, or you know like Bruce Wayne climbs the mountain to join the League of Shadows. And something in us uh, is drawn to that, you know, like even if we don't have what it takes to do that, something in us is drawn to that. Like, I really want to give myself to something meaningful, something that will cost me something. And when you go backward along the timeline of church history, you find uh, a lot of that that is an in instantaneously appealing, the idea of like, um, the early church uh, and the radical way of life that they exemplified and the way that they were willing to live and die for the teachings of Jesus in a meaningful way. doesn't mean that it was perfect. You can obviously still find hypocrisy and corruption all the way back to the stories in the New Testament. In fact, most of the New Testament is essentially a letter addressing <laughs> problems in the church and how they're getting it wrong. So that's there as well. But I think that I, at first I thought that I was going to rediscover, you know, this like uh, orthodox ancient religion and I was going to bring it up out into the world and like I, was, I had figured out what everyone else was missing. But what I realized was that there were already really beautiful communities that have, had been at this for years <laughs> and that I was kind of late to that conversation, but it gave me a place to step into. You know, we, I'm a pastor and at my church, for example, you know, we read the Apostles' Creed out loud all together, or we say the Nicene Creed together, or we we talk about the practices and beliefs of the early church. But if you came, wandered into it on a Sunday night, you'd probably think that it looked a lot like other churches. You know, it has all the same little blocks that you come to expect in an expression of church in the West. Or, And really, a lot of these have been part of the church for hundreds and hundreds of years, so it's not like we reinvent the wheel or anything. What I mean is that... Um, I think that that search for something ancient and beautiful and self-sacrificial, I thought would lead me into a place that 
I had never been. It was entirely alien, and I would end up, you know, in some kind of kooky outfit and a long beard in a cave and be like the Desert Fathers or something like that. And what I realized is that I came back into uh, the kind of communal circles that I last expected to be, meaning like American church um, with worship songs and sermons and reading the Bible uh, but deeply dedicated to, I mean, I use that term all the time, orthodox. By that, I mean like, you know, right belief, a code, a way of life. Like we hold one another to these things that we believe are true. Because I believe that's the only thing you can build a community around is a code or a way of life, shared belief. Um, and that's not just true of Christians. It's true of every worldview. You go and believe with other people. But but then there's the, you know, the trap in fundamentalism and and evangelicalism and stuff like that was, you know, that it, it becomes too dogmatic then or something like that. Like there's the, the, it goes farther and farther into the superficialness of the rules of the trappings or the dressings of. So that's the thing that we always are trying to react to. Um, but it's like, you're saying that, um, and again, I just think this is the beauty in it is the person, the people that are most resistant to be told what to do, trying to find where they can give in and set like by their choice, choose what to lay down, what to sacrifice, where to not, you know, where to not differentiate. Like that's the, 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 the tension and the beauty, um, you know, in that search. And, uh, so that, that, you know, that's what is really coming out about it to me. And then it's the trying to figure out how, what that means about what is the code and how, specific does that code really you know have to be kind of thing and that again that's where music and lyrics they they can be it's like one of the good qualities of lyrics and being able to you know uh even that that tension to me is like a, a harmonic it's, it's like music in that it's there's harmony in the two ideas of being an individual and being sacrificial and what you sacrifice for what are those what is the code and then how 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 detailed is that? Like, how do we draw that circle and where are those boundaries? Um, and that's what's really, really, you know, hard. And um, so then you get into, in, in your book, I, don't, I didn't say the name of it, but it's Death to Deconstruction. Then this term deconstruction comes up. And goodness gracious, it's super cool that the term is here and that people I know what it means at some level that we've been wrestling with for many <laughs> decades. I don't know, but yeah. um, it's yep. that it's a culturally relevant term to me is really exciting because the Christianity we come from was we come from a culture where Christianity is you know we we're believers in it and then but everybody knows it's irrelevant culturally. It's just a joke. It's behind. It's stupid. The music is bad. The thing is bad. They're corny. They're uneducated. Whatever it is, it's irrelevant. And then this this issue is actually somehow a relevant issue and an emerging issue in culture. So I think even that, you know, culture and influence and power and politics and uh you know, you know, all those kind of commercialism and celebrity now, I mean, now these things are, anyway, that's a part of the thing that, that I think is exciting, you know, about it as well. Um, and it, I appreciate in your book that you talk about, you, def, you I, I'm curious if you would define, you know, what you mean and don't mean by deconstruction. You do that in the book, but I think that's kind of a, you know, an important step here now that our culture is, participating in larger conversations. 
Yeah, obviously deconstruction is a, a loaded term and obviously it means different things in different contexts. But I think for the sake of, you know, clarity and in the kind of circles in which the book will inevitably travel, deconstruction in the spiritual pop culture conversation has kind of become a junk drawer term that usually describes the process of people like me who um, have religious baggage and who embark on a journey to dismantle and then eventually jettison most of the things that they were taught to believe um, through upbringing the church, pastors, parents. Uh, it inevitably arrives at one of two things, typically, and you know, again, I'm oversimplifying, but for the sake of brevity, uh, one is a new kind of fluid spirituality that maybe includes includes Jesus in some way, um, but not usually the Jesus of the New Testament, uh, unless it's just aspects of him. Um, usually it's kind of complemented by different spiritualities, podcast spiritualities, YouTube spiritualities, Eastern mysticism, um, Buddhism, you know, like it's almost like a YouTube Gandhi kind of spirituality. And, uh, or the other alternative is deconversion, which eventually arrives at the place of what, what I feel honestly, and I don't mean to step on toes, but has more integrity than kind of the personal pan spirituality. It's where one arrives at the point where they say, I just don't believe these things anymore. And so I, you know, they probably wouldn't use the language of denounce, but they, in essence, deconversion is, is a, is a reasonable term there that, that isn't synonymous with yeah. deconstruction. Right. It's the, I'm, all, I'm out. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just out. Um, and, uh, you know, the pushback that I got for calling my book Death to Deconstruction, uh, which was very triggering for a, a lot of folks that Im immediately stepped up to raise their hands and say, hey, but deconstruction's a very good thing and deconstruction saved my life. Or, or, or the accusation that I got early on was like, this guy, he's so out of touch. He, does, he doesn't know the pain of deconstruction. He hasn't been through, he hasn't walked with a single person through. This is, these are real things that I've read about the book online. Um, but the book is essentially my story of deconstruction. Uh, it, it, it covers years and years of my life, painful struggle, struggling and wrestling with the ideas that I was given and, um, and whether or not I was going to do one of those two things, erect some new spirituality of my own design, borrowed from things that I was taught, but mostly not, or deconvert altogether. And there were there were long seasons in my life when those two things were very real possibilities for me. Um, and that led to me to the place where I am now, which is not deconverted or deconstructed, but, you know, like what I would describe as more more grounded in the ancient, you know, orthodox historic Christian tradition than I have ever been, you know, and, and I check a lot of the marks for like, oh, he is, he's got to be cheesy and out of touch, like you said, because I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm a lead at a church. Um, I play in the worship band, I do all the things. But uh, I think that that's part of my, my wiring again coming out. I could have given it some kind of charming and, uh, and less abrasive title that's more like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know the journey through doubt or something like yeah, that exactly exactly um, yeah cut it spoke to is... me directly just i mean like yeah i know exactly what this take i mean you know <laughs> not like it's a take or a hot take or something i'm just like i get the impulse here this thing has come into the zeitgeist a little bit and now it's time to continue to react to it and update you know how how we're thinking about it and to be aggressive with the use of the language and the title, you know, I think that, I mean, it, it draws me in for sure. 
Yeah, I was I you know, that that's most what's most interesting to me aesthetically anyway is something that's a little more confrontational and abrasive mm-hmm. and I think there's there's mountains of really good books that are more gentle and pastoral and like hey listen these are really honest questions that you have let's talk about them together. I'm I'm really not making fun of them. I can recommend like 10 of those books. But I I felt when I sat down to write the thing and I I was approaching it that way at first as if I was going to write more of an intellectual pastoral like okay here's one issue I can help you resolve it here's another issue I can help you resolve it. And that's just not how I make stuff creatively and how I write or make music it tends to come out more confrontational and more um ag- aggressive in that sense and and i hope that it's it's thoughtful and it's nuanced and it's balanced it's, if anything it's really honest and sincere because it is my story and it's funny you know i've read some one person will be online being like oh this book's so great because he burns evangelicalism to the ground and then right beside it there's a review <laughs> that's like oh this book's so great he really sticks it to the progressives you know yeah exactly <laughs> so exactly it's a rorschach test yeah. Um, so if we, you know, um, if you jump to, I would like to jump to the, what I would consider, I mean, you know, I betray my my hand here in saying this, but what I figure is a, a, a what may on the surface appear similar, but seems at odds with, with you would be, let's say, the approach of John Cooper from Skillet. I'm not trying to call him out or anything, but there, it, it, well, I guess I am, but it's like that seems <laughs> to be divisive and politicized in some other way. I wonder how, but on the surface, people might say, oh, so I like guys like, you know, rock stars like Josh and Josh sticking it to the progressives and, be, you know, that somehow th- that doesn't resonate with the the way that he seems to be politicizing, which in your book, you say that politicized Christianity is one of the main dangers. And that sounds like what he's doing. That's what, to me, I feel like that is what he is doing. Yeah, I don't know Mr. Skillet personally. Um, and, and to be frank, and this is not some commentary on, obviously, on his popularity, because his band's enormous and bigger than, you know, probably anything mm-hmm. I, I'll make ever will be. So it's not a dig at him at all. But um, because I don't travel in that particular world, I didn't really know any of that stuff. I didn't know that he had been an outspoken, uh, you know, critic of the deconstruction movement in his own way. And so when I first started to talk about the book publicly, a lot of people were saying like, like the skillet guy. And I right, was like, the right. skillet guy. <laughs> I was like the new metal band. I I honestly had no idea. So I went poking around and, I'll admit I haven't looked really deeply into what he's saying, but I, I've gathered from the pop culture conversation and from people asking me, like, is it like this? And they describe at least their take on his particular approach, to which I usually say, honestly, like you just said. I mean, I'm, well, if you read the thing, I doubt you're going to feel as if it resonates with the Skillet guy personally. Um, again, I don't know. Maybe he would love it. And in fact, if you're listening, Mr. Skillet, please feel free to buy a copy and let me know what you think. Yeah, and I'm not but, just like trying that, to trash on him, but it just I specifically you address that in the book. And it is, you know, it feels like there's gain in it to to be against the deconstruction movement as a way to tri- tribalize. I mean, I just can't, I mean, I can't receive it. This yeah. is how I receive it um, in its behavior and effectiveness. So I've wouldn't you know what I mean? So, but yet that seems pretty contrary to your way of being. Yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, I have politicized Christianity as one of the 
greatest detriments to the Christian movement and one of the main reasons that people do deconstruct and deconvert. So I I have a feeling that, you know, I've been accused of and uh, almost entirely by people who haven't read this book by of being, you know, some kind of out of touch evangelical. But then at the same time, I'm getting angry emails from people who feel as if I've been too critical of evangelicalism. Um, so it's not, you know, the, the title is what it is. And I, I don't regret the title. I feel, you know, as mm, if it's, cool. it's, if anything, it's an invitation to a conversation. I, I like the idea of someone saying like, what the heck does that supposed to mean? E- even someone who feels as if they're more friendly with the term deconstruction um, to say like, what death to do, de- but, but that's been helpful. What does that mean? You know, and, and maybe I'm being presumptuous, but that's the kind of provocative art that draws me in, you know, the mm-hmm. kind that makes me feel like, a, oh, what the heck? Why, why would they say that? Why would they do that? Um, and then you find your way into the conversation. Even if you don't arrive at the exit going, man, I agree 100%. It, you've been provoked and you've been encouraged to think and kind of move, drawn outside of your own narrow boundaries. So I don't regret the title, but I do think that if anyone cracks the book and reads like the first five pages, it'll probably be obvious that it's not going to be, uh, now everyone just needs to shut up and go to church and vote Republican, you know, that kind of thing. It won't hold up for the first few paragraphs, let alone the entire book. Yeah. And I, I have, I find it interesting to explore because I feel that the polarization is likely to increase and that this exact area, I mean, we're going to see a wave of people returning to spirituality and specifically, I think, Christianity. And so we may have even been through a period where a lot of the overdoing it of evangelicalism and fundamentalism have been and are being burned away um, in a way that the deconstruction played a the deconstruction movement play a part in but also not inherently destructive all the way down to you know it it can be you could use the word controlled demolition instead of just deconstruct to the ground burn it all down it's like there's your undo it's a process of undoing stuff so that you can get to new fresh places but i do think that that we're probably still in some ways on the early side of things um, as far as the the divi- the potential divisiveness of of spirituality, because spirituality isn't obviously going away, and the the people that have left um, the people that have left sp- uh, Christianity and evangelicalism seem to be developing their own very rigid dogmas in a way that's alarming, and I think you you know you touch on that as well. But the reaction yeah, to I- <laughs> to it is also pretty dogmatic and scary. Yeah, and that was what inevitably uh, put me off the deconstruction herd mentality. And I don't mean to say that there's no one in the world who's doing any kind of thoughtful deconstruction. But I, in my personal experience, I was kind of swept out of one camp and into another camp, where and it had its own set of rules that I think were every bit as dogmatic and in some ways more dogmatic than the camp that I was trying to leave behind. And it came with its own uniform and its own code and its own imposed ideology, you know, and this is something that, you know, I've witnessed in my own lifetime is a shift of fundamentalism from the religious right to the progressive left. And um, meaning that, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it was presumed that fundamentalism, it lives on the right there. You know, I was a kid in the 80s and 90s and 
there was this intense um, kind of moral powerhouse uh, of uh, quasi or ostensibly Christian morality. They're like, we've got to legislate our morality. We've got to impose it on people, even if they don't believe the same things. We've got to force them to use our words and and control what gets said in schools and censor art that kind of violates our paradigm. And that uh, ideology, that paradigm is uh, alive and well, but now it kind of is exemplified more more on the left with the exact same, all the exact same qualities of we, we want to like impose and legislate our morality regardless of what people believe and control what gets said in schools and censor art that deviates from the rule book. And, you know, you have to use our words and our terms. And fundamentalism, for me personally, has always been the the thing that I'm you know most allergic to. It's the thing that really, really uh, uh, tweaks that wiring in me. That's like, oh, you know, like being told that dogmatic. Not just we have a code of life, but we have a code of life, and we and you either adhere to it or we destroy you. Um, and that's what put me out of uh, evangelicalism as a kid and as a you know a teenager and young adult. And it's what eventually put me out of progressive deconstructionism as a young adult, mm-hmm. uh, that sense that like this has as many or more rules and it where, and it has the exact same outfit. It's just a different, um, a different uniform, but a uniform nonetheless. And I, I agree with you. I think personally that even in the few years of my life, and I realize that, you know, I don't have as much experience as someone older than me, and I'm not a sociologist or a historian, but even from my anecdotal evidence, it seems obvious that the deconstruction movement in the West, Western world and America, and I should be, you know, honest and say that statistically speaking, that's where it lives. There's kind of this uh, mistaken, I think, uh, notion or presumption that a lot of us make that I made at one point in my life. It's like, oh my God, everyone's quitting. But Christianity in America is such a tiny expression of a global worldview, a global way of life that. Um, even, you know, reports published as recently as this year, uh, point out that most of the Christians in the world don't live in America. They live in Africa and in Asia and Latin America and Oceania. The, the majority of those Christians are in Africa and the majority of those Christians are female and the median age, statistically speaking, is around 19, which means that, uh, the average Christian is not the jaded podcaster in California, the white right. affluent millennial. The, right. the average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria, and they are not having the deconstruction conversation. Um, you know, that's something that I think also uh, bothered me early on and something that is kind of like a, a almost like a dirty secret of the at least um, digital deconstruction wave in America is that uh, statistically speaking, and again, I realize there's exceptions to every rule, but statistically speaking, deconstruction is a movement of millennial affluent white uh, Americans. And that across the world, you know, the, the, the movement of Christianity thrives among people who are none of those things. And so it becomes almost like this colonizing like uh, mm-hmm. mob mentality that's mm-hmm. like, we want to come at these poor people of color that don't have power or privilege, but they believe these ridiculous, archaic things and they should know better and we should impose our way of life on them and make them understand that we're smarter and we've moved beyond these barbaric principles and this old, outdated book written by people of color in a different part of the world who are oppressed. No, we know better, we've moved on. 
So I think that that, you know, I'm obviously describing it really snarkily and to say that I don't think that that's tenable long term. It's not sustainable. Eventually, it's going to tangle itself on its own contradictions. But spirituality is not going anywhere the, uh, because we all reach for our spiritual component as human beings. And so I think there will be probably a wave of movement toward a more historically credible um, movement of, of Jesus, one grounded in the scriptures and the early church and, you know, in orthodoxy. Um, and there will inevitably be a, a, a new movement of, um, you know, away from of those things. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all that, I think it makes a lot of sense for American evangelicalism. And by that, I mean, you know, the politicized term to burn to the ground. I, I think it's every bit as untenable as the, um, you know, contradictory deconstruction herd mentality. And there's a reason that it's hurt so many people and estranged so many people from faith that will probably die out and should die out. But it's what, what will be left. I think there will probably be a new migration toward the way of Jesus and a, a more sincere deconversion away to something else in between. That that weird precarious middle uh, deconstruction movement thing, I don't think personally will will last the way that it it feels as if it can hold itself up long term. But yeah, I'm already I, I agree with you know, that. having conversations I, with people. Yeah, I, I I I agree with that and feel still tying it back into the theme of this community podcast, Furnace Fest, and everything is just that the need the the idea of cooperation it and versus competition and the um a place for everybody and the diverse genres is in the dna of of this music movement in the tooth and nail scene or whatever is something i think that i know brandon and jim and everybody from the get-go kind of recognized is this the way of jesus and then bands of all types on the same bill in the own way where it is you know different but then putting it all together and accepting of, of one another and, and that kind of thing. Those, those seem to be, you know, in the DNA. And, uh, you know, a lot of times on this podcast, we do obviously do a lot of music, talk about albums and very specific things like this. But a lot of times people ask, why don't you talk more about Christianity and that kind of stuff? Because it's just, it's just totally, totally mixed in. I thought this would be a good conversation to look at the zoomed out, you know, point of view, you know, of it a little bit and see what's, what's in common there, but that it's what is in common that to focus on what is in common, but is different than the mainstream, the friend, you know, the, the music gets labeled as, you know, even if the Christian festivals, it's the fringe stage. We go, okay, we're at the fringe stage, you know, it's just, you're, you're constantly, but to embrace that, that part and the nuance and, and, and that kind of thing, um, it, you know, feels, that that way for you know contrarian kind of kind of people. So I'm hoping this conversation is uh, lining up with the va- you know just a painting a bigger picture of what what I think is inherent in the fans of this scene too when they can get along and talk about the stuff that they do like and you know be at the stuff together kind of like that. That's that's the yeah. theme that I'm feeling. Yeah, and I think that that's something that can be done. It's just interesting the way that the boundary lines tend to rearrange themselves over time, you know, like with the release of this book and then, you know, Showbread made new music and it like is kind of exists in this secret access kind of thing. And 
there was a, an immediate allergic reaction to that from the, the few people that care about me or showbread or the book because most of them aren't where I am personally, or maybe I'm exaggerating, but it feels as if a lot of them so, are can in you different places. Be more in more detail there. The showbread fans. Yes, I think that uh, a lot of people who who listen to showbread at a formative age in their um, you know adolescence are coming out of youth group culture, or they were mm -hmm. raised Christian, or they were evangelicals, and eventually deconstructed and are no longer Christian or no longer identify with those aspects of showbread songs and lyrics. But, you know, they'd still like that type of music and these albums still mean something to them. So they, they are interested or keep up with it to some degree. And something this confrontational to what feels like to them, something so personal, uh, it, it was really alienating to them. And there was a lot of like, Oh, I don't like this guy anymore. I can't believe mm -hmm. he said those things. Um, and I get it. I totally get it. And again, I think if anyone actually cracked the book, they'd realize that it's maybe not what they were expecting. But it's interesting to me that we haven't really done changed the way that we do anything. All along, what I thought was interesting and the, the role that I thought Showbread played in its little niche in the, in the world, in the scene, in the music industry was kind of a prophetic critique of the status quo. And we, you know, like we made album after album um, that was finding fault or criticizing structures in the church or evangelicalism. We made political records. We picked on certain uh, people and ideas very openly. Um, but then when that kind of critique felt like it uh, arrived on some of the audience, they felt understandably betrayed. What you know, it was like, well, I'm fine if you make entire concept records that pick on political evangelicals, but I don't want to have my own way of life called into question. Like this mm -hmm. is this is a bridge too far for me. But to me personally, nothing's really changed. And I think that, like you said, it it is and should be a place where those conversations are um, not only. Um, welcome, but ex expected. You know, I, I I thought maybe, and maybe I was being presumptuous or naive, but I thought maybe it would be like, well, yep, makes sense. They would do this. This is what well, this is what this guy tends to do, and I don't have to agree with it by by any stretch of the imagination. But um, it is interesting to have the conversation, and to, and it is interesting to be provoked or have what you think is true called into question in a meaningful way. Um, I think that that's something that art art does and can do uniquely. Um, and so that's why I prioritize that over, you know, the kind of pat on the back, like, yep, everybody, hurrah, we all think the same thing already. Mm -hmm. There, and it, that's what is fascinating is to me, it is the same thing that you're doing. But if you think about it in the very narrow sense of musically or band, there's like two approaches. And I'm, I'm saying, Surely one is not better than the other in some way. But if you, if you look in 2004, you make an album, it's called No Sir, Nihilism is Not Practical. That sounds like death to deconstruction to me. That sounds like the same, that sounds like a, the same thing to me. It really does. You know, yeah. that's what I think it is saying. Um, and so, and I'm sure a lot of the lyrics on there are there, and then the musical textures are on there. And it's just, and there's a, you know, just the way that you're expressing things that you've known probably since you were pre-traumatized by the church, things you've probably known since you were a young child, you're expressing across your lifetime. And at some point they're these showbread albums, or sometimes they're the performance art on stage. Sometimes they're written down in a blog or on a podcast or in a book 
or at church. I mean, it's not, there is no, to me, I don't see those things as separate at all. The other approach is when you really understand the music that you're making and the audience and you try to maximize that audience and the music's fit is a, an amazing thing that bands, I'll say like August Burns Red and, um, and Berlin have been able to just do such a good job of understanding what they are, what their audience is and how to fit those together and reach many, many people that way and really, really put a lot of positivity in the world by a different path. But Showbread's yeah, path totally. or your path is, is, is different, but nonetheless, I see both them and you as doing exactly what you do linear across 20 years. I mean, it's a, just run it, doing what you do. And it, you know, yeah. they, they just produce different paths. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I agree that one is not better than the other. And I like lots of bands who have done exactly what you're describing by sticking to kind of an idea that is accommodating. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Like no, I don't that, mean it that, that way. Yeah. Considers, for sure. Yeah. That invites the audience in and like, you like this, we're going to do more of this. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to enjoy that as a member of that audience looking for that thing. Um, but you know, I, I was maybe more drawn to even someone who acknowledges the quality of that and liking that I was more drawn to the artists that were willing to make the record that I didn't want them to make, if that right. makes sense, you know, right. like the, yeah. the, the kind of album that you buy, not knowing what the heck it's going to sound like or what they're going to be talking about because they change every time. And they, they seem like they are deliberately provoking the audience to a certain extent, the kind of artists that are willing to evolve and change and, you know, the Nick Caves of the world or, you know, the Bowie's or Trent Reznor's that, you know, you have these records and you're like, Oh my God, like this is a stretch even for me. I have to figure out if I have a way into this and the kind of record you have to play several times to go like, Oh, I think now I get it. And then, you know, months later it becomes one of your favorites. Um, so I think both are great, both are valid, and and maybe you know uh, I could have done either thing because I like either thing. But when I sat down to try to say anything creatively, it ends up being more of that. Uh, it, it's interesting to provoke. It, it, there's a time and a place to provoke. It's not the only way to say anything, and certainly not the only and best way to communicate. But I feel like that's what I have to contribute. And and like you said, that's that's the thing that I've been doing. Since the beginning, in many ways, it's kind of like tale as old as time. I, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't even put that together. The, the first album sounds a lot like the new book. So here it is, here it is again. <laughs> well, if if you are there for a second, can you help me get even more granular? And is there lyrics or songs on that album, and then any other albums that that are that that feel resonant with with where you're at today that are relevant to this you know conversation and episode? I'm putting yeah, you on the absolutely. spot there, the, but if anything pops out, I'd be curious. No, you know, the the on the first album, there's a song that we played almost every time we played live called A Llama Eats a Giraffe and vice versa. And it was the thematic theme, you know, the kind of the theme song for the record in that conceptually, I thought I was messing with the idea of nihilism as, an, it's to me an appealing worldview. It's not my worldview, but... I, I tell people at my church all the time, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be a nihilist. That's the next 
reasonable worldview for me. Um, if this isn't true, then it has to be this other thing. Yes, yes. Um, Agreed. So, uh, yeah, and I was reading a lot of, like, pop nihilists and um, because, you know, the the deeper stuff is, is really dense. And it felt to me as if it's, like, as appealing as it is, it's not a tenable worldview. No one, no one actually lives as if nihilism is true because you end up with, like, chaotic evil uh or or just rampant um self-serving chaos it doesn't because it result it, in community and unity <laughs> right exactly yeah you can't you yeah. can't build community around yeah. nihilism so it's it's just not practical and the and i think i was describing that to someone as i was processing some book i was reading and they laughed at the idea that that sentence sounds so formal and silly and i was like oh it does i really like the idea of it um, and so I started writing songs in that vein and was trying to put those two things together. And that first song, the, the llama, the, you know, the titular llama and giraffe are Christianity and nihilism, um, like duking it out. And, and both of them have qualities that are in some sense similar, you know, with one great difference, meaning there is a kind of spirit in Christianity that's like, this is the one true thing. And everything else is going to have to like come under the truth of this one great thing. And, you know, nihilism's thing is like ultimately nothing matters. Um, so, you know, I was putting those things together. And I, when, when we sang that at Furnace Fest, I was realizing like I, I still think the things in this song are true, you know. And we were singing like uh, what I thought were silly misfits-like songs about horror movies, but I was trying to like lend them some kind of deeper philosophical dimension and sing about like their connection with human evil. And we have this song called Welcome to Plainfield, Toby Hooper, which is a reference to um, Ed Gein, who was a, a famous depraved killer, um, and Toby Hooper was the director of the 1974 film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it was this idea of like someone, which was based in part on Ed Gein, the real person. So it was the idea of like fictional evil, having to wrestle with real life evil, but we use it as entertainment. And um, so I'm singing that song at Furnace Fest and thinking like, man, I still actually think that this is, this is not so bad. This is pretty good. I think a lot of the time we as lyricists and musicians, we look back on old songs and go like, oh my gosh, what was I talking about? Even if we're fine, you know, singing it still, we're just like, well, I was 20, so what do you want? But um, these things continue to, you know, resonate with me. And I said at some point at Furnace Fest, like, I actually believe these songs more now than I did then. Meaning, like, with so many years of hindsight and I hope spiritual formation and maturity, like, I met them very sincerely, but now they mean something more. To me, because I've lived them out in a meaningful way, what the things that I believe about Jesus and the world and human beings and evil, um, they still connect and still resonate with me now. So, you know, so and and to your point, you know, like someone uh, criticized me because I think I used language in the in what I said at Furnace Fest that ended up being in the book, or I said something about faithfulness as rebellion, and they're like, "Oh, it was just a commercial for his book. How how lame is that?" Mm -hmm. um, and so I ended up telling people like, no, I mean, believe it or not, that's just what I believe. Like these, that's what I think is true. 
So, of course, I said it on stage at Furnace Fest and put it in my book and say it in my sermons and say it in song lyrics because that's just what I believe is true. It's not marketing. Um, I actually think these things. So, and I still do. Yeah. That, I think that's awesome. And it's hard to, um, I agree that nihilism is an attractive because it, in the same way that Calvinism was once attractive to me, it's, it appeals to my logic. It feels like it fits many things, you know, um, but there's something there's, first of all, yeah, it, it doesn't in, ultimately seem very practical. Um, but also, uh, I just have uh, some innate sense that there is more that there, you know, and I meant to ask you this earlier, and I was wondering if you would comment on it. If you had at what ages did you have actual, you know, mystical or transcendent experiences where you were swept away in, you know, because I think part of music and worship music and other things get at that. But before you were able to even do music at young ages, did you have connection to to God or spiritual, you know, that that might be a piece that I, I still am curious if you, you know, had, because part of that seems what that drive or that you're, that's something you can taste that you know is there, that you know is beyond, is more than we can sense with our sensory, you know, sensors that we have and stuff is there. Do you have that early on or throughout our current, you know, th as a thread throughout your life? I did. And I have, um, you know, I said earlier that the, for everything that was wrong or not so great about my church upbringing, I was presented very early on with a, a paradigm of Jesus as personal you know, like the Jesus that loves everyone, the Jesus that cares about you and knows about you. And and as someone who felt like an outsider, which is a lonely place to be, even if you try to put yourself there, it can often feel really lonely. Um, I couldn't shake the idea of the Jesus who knew all about me and loved me and saw me. So I had this ingrained idea that I eventually tried to purge but I felt as if there was um, a sincere connectedness uh, between myself and even just the idea of Jesus, even before uh, uh, what I would describe as a, a spiritual or mystical experience. And eventually that happened as well. You know, I didn't have language to describe it, but um, I feel as if, and you know, for your theologically inclined listeners, like, you know, I'm charismatic in my theology, meaning like I think God still talks to people and the, the Holy Spirit's real thing and um, weird, kooky, what, maybe what some people would call supernatural or miraculous stuff happens in the world. Mm -hmm. um, before I had any of those experiences, and I have had uh, many of them now, um, I had the, you know, what the scriptures describe as the still small voice. I had like a communicative, communicative, Internal. connected, yes, yes, okay. like where I would feel as if, um, you know, what someone else that's not a Christian would easily just describe as, oh, that's just you. You just thought that thing and you attributed it to God. But I would later like have the language and the paradigm to describe it as like, you know, direct deposit into my thinking and mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. by God. Um, or by the Spirit of God. And now that's something that's part of my regular practice. You know, like it is as insane as this sounds to, I'm sure a lot of people who hear this, I wake up in the morning and I spend time praying and I read from the scriptures and I say, God, do you want to say something to me? And then I sit there and listen. And then, you know, whatever comes to my mind, sure, it could be just me. And I'm aware of that possibility, but I at least um, entertain the possibility that God might be talking to me through and, you know, and, um, 
So that that thing that is now developed into a discipline, what I would call a spiritual discipline, practice, like I make yeah. time and yeah, practice that I do every single morning and we do as a community at our church. Um, it used to be this kind of sloppy, and I mean that, you know, in, uh, endearingly. It used to be like a less ordered, less practiced, like I would pray in the way that young people know how to pray, which is more like Christmas list prayer, you know, like, God, I really need this thing or that thing. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a mean-spirited way, like, because that's how, the only way I knew how to talk to God and would feel um, communicatively connected to God. And eventually, like, I think God was nice enough to me to show up and do crazy things, it, even with that monicum of, like, faith that I was like, eh, I kind of feel like maybe God says stuff to me sometimes, but I don't know if it's true and it could just be me and and this is while I'm in the throes of do I even believe any of this at all um I would exp- I would have and have experienced um things that I would describe as supernatural or miraculous or you know the kind of like this thing came to my mind that was so hyper specific and I felt so ridiculous about articulating it out loud and then it happened to be the exact thing for the person next to me you know that and mm-hmm. I and I've seen that kind of thing happen on a regular basis um so all that to say, all throughout that process of wrestling through deconstruction and wondering whether or not I would abandon this, there was always this box, this question mark that would be like, well, if I do, what am I going to do with this thing? You know, like this thing is going to have to go somewhere. And by this thing, I mean, what about that weird time <laughs> that this happened or that God, I felt like God spoke and like, I'm going to have to just say, it was a fluke or I made it up or it was just me or it was emotional or it was a coincidence. And, you know, those, those are all arguments. I get it. But because they were so personal and so real in my experience and because I had this, you know, for me, Jesus was not objectified. He was not like uh, this figure that I'd been given and I never felt connected to him and he was imposed on me. Like he was personal to me and I and like I you know told you many times I was actually sincerely drawn to the teaching of Jesus mm-hmm. I would read Jesus and be like totally. this guy's crazy it's amazing yeah. um so I felt like well if I do go what am I going to do with this thing because if even just to say like okay well I just don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was means that well now you have to then go well then his teaching is a bunch of crap because you know he made these claims that he didn't leave any room for Oh, he's just a good teacher, you know, like he was out of his mind or corrupt or he was a liar, you know, all all these classic arguments for the validation of the teaching of Jesus. Um, And that to me maybe was one of the the obstacles to my complete deconstruction or my complete deconversion. The question mark, even if it was uh, um, me procrastinating, was like, well, okay, I might go, but I'll have to figure out what to do with this. And I don't know what to do with it just yet. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you for being a lifelong uh, explorer and learner, um, and op- and open, uh, you know, across the, the span of time. And you, you know, it w- it's likely that you, in many years from now, you will even continue to look back at now and other times like that. So I, that is, um, it's a, it's a really it's 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 nice to be attached to this type of thinking across time. So I really appreciate it. Um, and I'm curious if you'll send us out with another showbread song that is resonant um, with with where you're at today when you look back and it feels more than ever. You got another one from the showbread catalog for us? I do. Yeah, I can draw on these things. Also. I actually like the showbread <laughs> songs. That's a good thing about being in a band when you like being in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for me, maybe one of the ones that 
summarizes, and I, I promise I didn't prepare this beforehand or anything, but there's a song that concludes the Cancer album um, called You Will Die in a Prison. And uh, it is this kind of long, sprawling narrative of the, the, the protagonist of that particular story wrestling with what he believes about faith and if, if faith is a real-lived thing, if it will cost him anything, um, and if whether or not he's failed um, his idea of God and, uh, and Jesus and, and comes to a, a place of faithfulness by the conclusion of the song. But there's a lot of like painful wrestling in the song to get from the, fir- the opening lines to the concluding lines. Um, and that to me, like I, I dusted off that record recently and was listening to it. I was like, oh, this actually sounds like it could fit with the things I'm talking about now, even though. Uh, if someone were to ask me before revisiting it, I would have said like, oh, I don't even remember what's on that thing. It could be anything. But turns out I still think these things. That's a that's a good one. We'll play that one on the way out here. And uh, people can check out your book. It's Death to Deconstruction. And you know where people know where to get books, just like they know where to find that song. Don't even have to say it. Yep. But feel free to say yep. it. Um, do, but you do have, do you like people to go to your website? You know, just because you yeah, have other, sure, I didn't I, even mention that you've done fiction and other th- expressive mediums. I think you'll find these themes resonant and all the things that you find in the consistency in your work over time is, is a, is a adventure people can take. But was that best to just go to your website for, for that in general? Yep. Joshua S. Porter is like a junk drawer. Joshua S. com that has all that crap there. If you're, Excellent. if you're so inclined. Okay. Well, Josh, thank you for the time today. I really enjoyed connecting. Yeah, man. You too. Thanks, dude. Thank you for listening to this episode of Labeled. My name is Aaron Lunsford, and a favorite scene moment of mine is the time the singer from Gatsby's American Dream tried to hook up with the girlfriend of As Cities Burns fill-in bass player on tour with Emery. <laughs> Such fond memories. We all watched it go down from the tour bus as she got sent home in a Cadillac. Some random relative picked her up in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Could have been a reality show. Real girlfriends of emo tours or something. Labeled is produced by Matt Carter and Knucklebreaker Productions at Compound 3 Recordings. Editing and sound design by Seth Thompson. Editing oversight by Jim Worthen and Adam Scatula. Brand and design direction by Joe Joel Bielkelman. Our production manager is Katie Franson. Executive producers, Brandon Ebel and Matt Carter. Additional support from Marshall Fremeth, Tyson Pilati, and Anna Mirzglocki. 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 